How's everybody doing? Hey, <laughs> hey, um, just to reaffirm that you guys are like the coolest people in the world. I know the parking lot looks like the apocalypse out there. I know it's crazy. Um, I also know it's starting to get tight in this room, which by the way, there's a couple of seats up here in the front row if anyone wants them. But anyways, um, I know it's getting tight in here. Just to give you, just to let you know that there's light in this tunnel that we are in right now. Um, I, we're about five weeks away from having the parking lot completely done, which is I don't, well, yeah, I don't know about you. I'm going to like roll around on the pavement and like, I don't know, like shoot champagne all over the place and stuff. Uh, you're welcome to join me in that. That'd be awesome. And um, so we're going to, so if you drive by one day, like in the middle of the week and you see some guy like, yeah, it's, it's me. Um, so that's probably going to happen. And then we, we plan on having our first uh, weekend in the other side, Resurrection Sunday. That's it's Easter weekend. So, so no longer will we have to sit on each other's laps and stuff in service. We will actually have our own chair and plenty of space to move around. So that'll be nice. Um, okay. Anyways, all right. So if you haven't been with us, we are in the Book of Daniel. We've been in the Book of Daniel for a long time, guys. We are today and next weekend, and we'll be done with the entire Book of Daniel. Kind of, I'm, I'm going to miss it a little bit. I've really enjoyed teaching it. I've learned a lot from it. I've loved it. If you weren't here with us last week, chapter 10 of Daniel was extremely interesting. Now, Daniel's an aging prophet. He worked under the Babylonians. The Babylonians were taken over by the Persians. Now he works for the Persians under a guy named King Cyrus. It mentions that in chapter 10. And so he's writing down his memoirs and he's writing down about visions that he's had in the past. One of the visions that he had in the third year of working for the Persians was he had this vision where this angel showed up and he told him uh, that there is spiritual warfare, that there are these demonic presences, that there are these angelic presences and they fight with each other and they are warring with each other. This battle is going on. And if you were with us during chapter 10, Daniel's just kind of overwhelmed by this. And then in the end of this vision, this angel says, well, not just the spiritual warfare, I'm gonna give you details about how the rest of human history is gonna kind of play out. And so what we're gonna to see today is we're gonna see details, a lot of history, okay? It's a lot to take in. If you don't follow well with it, if you're not a Greek scholar on Greek history, it's, it's not a big deal. I'm gonna mispronounce some names probably and I'm not even going to attempt to say some names because I'm not a Greek scholar. So when we get into today, I'm gonna to encourage you at the beginning don't get lost in the details. The reason why chapters of the Bible, like chapter 11 of Daniel, are so vitally important, if people are skeptical about the historical accuracy or validity of the Bible, you can go to Daniel chapter 11, that was written about 450 years before the events that it writes about take place. You can read the detail of chapter 11 and then go back and study Greek history and it lines up perfectly. That shows how important chapters like this are. So the history sometimes is a casual reader of the Bible. You're like, oh, all this Greek history. But it was written hundreds and hundreds of years before Greek history. So it shows how important that is, okay? So that's what we're going to talk about a little bit today. We're going to talk about how Daniel and the book of Revelation not only give us prophecies of the future, some that have already happened, some that have not happened yet, but it also gives us the insight on how God works, the nature of God, okay? So look, bear with me today. I'm such a great guy that I've made these fancy maps for you because we're gonna talk a lot about Syria, a lot about Egypt, and so I don't have to constantly throw this back up here. When we're talking, you can reference this and you're gonna see a lot of action is gonna happen between Syria, Egypt. If you look at Turkey over to the left, that's where the Greek islands are in, in Asia Minor. And so we're gonna talk a lot about those areas and you got a, a handy dandy map there to kind of help you out, all right? Hold on with me until the last section and then it's all gonna click and you're gonna feel awesome and you're gonna just, this thunderous applause for all the work I've done on this. It's gonna be amazing, all right? <laughs> okay, so. Let me pray. We'll jump into this and um, we'll see where the Lord takes us, okay? All right, let me pray. Father God, we love you. We thank you, Lord, and we lift you up for everything you've done, God. Um, thank you, Jesus, just, just 
Thank you for keeping your hand on us, Lord. Thank you for your word that shows us, God, that you're real and that you're there and that you have your hand on us, Lord. God, open up our eyes and open up our minds today, God. Help us to understand. Help us to be good stewards of the information you've given us. Father, we pray for every single church in our city, God. Uh, We pray for the bigger ones, the smaller ones, everything in between, God, as long as they teach, Lord, that you are the way, the truth, and the life, Lord God. We are behind them, and we want your kingdom to advance through them, Lord. We love you. Keep your hand on us today. Help me to teach with accuracy and help me to reflect your heart, God. We love you, and we lift you up in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, all of chapter 11, mind you, is an angel speaking to Daniel, okay? So this is all from the angel of the Lord talking about future events, future events that some of them are are our history and some that have not happened yet, okay? Here we go. Three more kings will arise in Persia, and the fourth will be far richer than the others. By the power he gains through his riches, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. Then a warrior king will arise. He will rule a vast realm and do whatever he wants. But as soon as he is established, his kingdom will be broken up and divided to the four winds of heaven. But not to his descendants. It will not be the same kingdom that he ruled because his kingdom will be uprooted and will go to others besides them. The king of the south will grow powerful, but one of his commanders will grow more powerful and will rule a kingdom greater than his. After some years, they will form an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south will go to the king of the north to seal the agreement. She will not retain power, and his strength will not endure. She will be given up, together with her entourage, her father, and the one who supported her during those times." In the place of the king of the south, one from her family will rise up, come against the army, and enter the fortress of the king of the north. He will take action against them in triumph. He will take even their gods captive to Egypt with their metal images and their precious articles of silver and gold. For some years, he will stay away from the king of the north, who will enter into the king of the south and then return to his own land." His sons will mobilize for war and assemble a large number of armed forces. They will advance, sweeping through like a flood, and will again wage war as far as his fortress. That's a lot of detail. A lot of detail. And so this angel is talking to Daniel, giving him this detail, and essentially he's filling in the blanks, giving just remarkable clarity to these 70 weeks that we talked about a couple of chapters ago. So there's going to be these 490 years from when Daniel was alive until Jesus comes back, and they're not all consecutive. There'll be 483 years, and then there's a pause, and then the last seven years of human history as we know it will take place, okay? We'll talk about that a little bit later. So the king of Persia that Daniel's working under is a guy named Cyrus. The angel says there's going to be three more kings that are going to come after Cyrus, one whose name I cannot pronounce, another guy whose name I can pronounce his first name, Darius, and then a third one who I can pronounce is a guy named Xerxes. And so Xerxes is the most famous of these Persian kings. And we know him because A, he was far richer than the other kings, and B, he's extremely popular in the Bible. If you've ever read the book of Esther, Chapter one is King Xerxes setting a table because he's about to go launch this huge campaign against Greece. He's written about in Ezra, he's written about in Esther. And what happened was is Xerxes' father, Darius, had lost a number of battles to the Greeks. And so he's gonna build up this huge army and launch this full-scale war against Greece. So for months now, we've been talking how the Persians are going to be conquered by the Greeks. There's the wasp of the apocalypse. So how the Persians are going to be conquered by the Greeks. And so now we start to see how that's going to unfold. Okay. So when Xerxes launched this campaign against the Greeks, there was a young man that rose up, a warrior king, the Bible says. And this warrior king rose up and we know him as Alexander the Great. And it says right after his kingdom got established, it broke apart into four parts. So at age 33, he died, okay? At age 33, King Alexander died, or Alexander the Great. And he had four generals. And these four generals took what was the Greek empire, and it was now divided. 
So one of those four empires went south. A guy named Ptolemy, there's going to be a lot of Ptolemies, he's the first one. This guy Ptolemy went down and occupied Egypt on your map, that's south, okay? So he became the king of the south. Another one of the generals went up and occupied what is now Syria and became the king of the north. A guy named Seleucus went and took over the north, okay? So now we're going to have the king of the north and the king of the south, and these two and their families are not going to get along very well. So they start this warring between the two of them. They start fighting between the two of them. And at one time, one of the descendants of uh, the South says, well, why don't we send up our daughter and she can marry the king of the North and that'll kind of like be an agreement. And so that didn't work out. Come to find out the king of the North was already married. So you don't send a woman to marry a guy who's already married. Wives don't like that, right? So she got jealous killed this girl that was sent up, killed all the people sent uh, with the girl. And then, so the brother of, of, of the king of Egypt got ticked off that his sister just got killed, gathered this huge army together and went and attacked the north. And so now here we go. This soap opera in the Middle East is starting to take place. And the north and the south are fighting and it's just crazy. So when you look at this map again, What's really fascinating, if Egypt and Syria are fighting like crazy, the only pathway between the two of them is our friends, the Jews. Israel lies right there in the middle. So a lot of fighting takes place, a lot of plunder takes place. The Jews kind of get the short end of the stick. Whenever one of them gets mad, they just kind of like take it out on the Jewish people because they're right there in the center. And remember that because that's important as we go on, okay? So as things escalate, another generation comes up. It says, infuriated, the king of the south will march out to fight with the king of the north who will raise up a large army, but they will be handed over to his enemy. When the army is carried off, he will become arrogant and cause tens of thousands to fall, but he will not triumph. The king of the north will again raise a multitude larger than the first. And after some years, he will advance with a great army and many supplies. In those times, many will rise up against the king of the south, violent ones among your own people. He's telling Daniel, even Jews are going to get involved in this. And they will assert themselves to fulfill a vision, but they will fail. Then the king of the north will come, build up an assault ramp, and capture a well-fortified city. The forces of the south will not stand. Even their select group, troops, will not be able to resist. The king of the north who comes against him will do whatever he wants, and no one can oppose him. He will establish himself in the beautiful land, that's Israel, with total destruction in his hand. He will resolve to come with the force of his whole kingdom and will reach an agreement with him. He will give him a daughter in marriage to destroy it, but she will not stand with him or support him. Then he will turn his attention to the coasts and the islands, and capture many. But a commander will put an end to his taunting. Instead, he will turn his taunts against him. He will turn his attention back to the fortresses of his own land, but he will stumble, fall, and be no more. In his place, one will arise who will send out a tax collector for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days, he will be shattered, though not in anger or in battle." So what happens is, is the grandson of the king of the north, a guy named Antiochus the Great, I mispronounced his name a couple of weeks ago, I'm really sorry about that, but Antiochus the Great, along with his brother, launched another large attack against Egypt, and they were met with the current Ptolemy, a guy named Ptolemy uh, Ptolemy Philopater, who won the battle and slaughtered all the troops. So the north lost that one, right? So Antiochus goes back home, waits 14 years and then launches another attack on Egypt. And one of the reasons why he decided to launch this attack is he found out the new king of Egypt was only four years old. So if you're gonna attack a country, like pick the one with the four-year-old king, right? So he found out (laughs) that the king was four years old and went down to attack Egypt again. Now, in the course of going from Syria to Egypt, he picked up a bunch of rebellious Jews apostate Jews, Jews that did not have an allegiance to their God, did not have an allegiance to their temple or any of that. And he started picking them up. And with the help of these apostate rebellious Jews, they took over a well-fortified city in Israel called Sidon. 
They took this over and therefore established themselves in Israel, in modern-day Israel, in the beautiful land, okay? So all of this scripture, all of this scripture was fulfilled. You can go back in Greek history and read about it. One of the more interesting things in this drama is the king of the north thought, well, what I can do is I can send down my daughter. At this time, the king is 10 years old. He's, he's coming into puberty. He's growing up. So I'm going to send my daughter down there to marry this boy in Egypt. And since I can't beat them in battle, Antiochus thought, I'll send my daughter down there and she'll just manipulate this boy and we'll rule Egypt that way. That didn't work out because she fell in love with the kid. Her name was Cleopatra, not the Cleopatra, but Cleopatra went down there, met this 10-year-old boy that she's supposed to like manipulate and take over Egypt. And she's like, I kind of like this kid. They fell in love and they were kind of happily ever after thing. And so Antiochus is like, what do I do now? So what he did is he focused his attention. If you look at your map, go up to Turkey and go left. That's the coastlands that now he started to focus on. That's Asia Minor and that's Greece. Greece is over there a little bit further off your map. So he goes up there, he heads down through Turkey, he hits the coastland, he starts taking people over, these islands, right? He's conquering. What he wasn't ready for is that the Romans were backing up the Greeks out there. So the Roman Empire comes, they're backing up the Greeks, they chase this guy out back to Syria, and there's a really famous commander named Lucius who ended this guy's taunting pushed him back into Syria. Instead of me just botch it, I'm just not going to say it, okay? So pushes them back into Syria, just like the scripture says. And it says that he went back to the fortresses of his own land. Now, the way that the Romans and and, and the Greeks kept this king, Antiochus the Great, in Syria is they took 20 hostages. One of the hostages was the rightful heir to the throne. So they take these hostages and they say, Antiochus, If you come out of Syria, we're going to kill all these people. And so that kept him kind of put for a while. Now, Antiochus, his time ran out and his successor came into power, a guy named Seleucus Philippator, and he faced enormous national debt. Now, see how relevant this is to our time. He faced enormous national debt, so he sent out a tax collector, raised taxes to therefore bring wealth back to Syria. There wasn't enough money in Syria to tax from the people in Syria, so he sent the tax collector into Israel as well and said, tax the Jews, break into their temple, steal all the gold, steal all the silver. And so that's what he sent this tax collector to do. Now, legend has it that this tax collector got to the Jewish temple and God had sent two angels to run him off. Okay, so we don't know that to be a fact, but we know that he never raided the temple and he ran back to Syria. We know from history that he ran back to Syria and he assassinated the king. He poisoned the king. So the drama continues, right? So the next leader is a guy named Antiochus and a different Antiochus. His name is Antiochus Epiphanes. You guys didn't know you're gonna be a big Greek history lesson today, right? We're moving on, right? Everyone's good? I don't hear any snoring. Here we go. In his place, a despised person will arise. Royal honors will not be given to him, but he will come during a time of peace and seize the kingdom by intrigue. A flood of forces will be swept away before him, and they will be shattered as well as the covenant prince. After an alliance is made with him, He will act deceitfully. He will rise to power with a small nation. During a time of peace, he will come into the richest parts of the province and do what his fathers and predecessors never did. He will lavish plunder, loot, and wealth on his followers, and he will make plans against fortified cities, but only for a time. With a large army, he will stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south. The king of the south will prepare for battle with an extremely large and powerful army, but he will not succeed because plots will be made against him. Those who eat his provisions will destroy him. His armies will be swept away and many will fall slain. The two kings, that's the king of the north and king of the south, whose hearts are bent on evil will speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for still the end will come at the appointed time. 
The king of the north will return to his land with great wealth, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant, and he will take action, then return to his own land. At the appointed time, he will come again to the south, but this time will not be like the first. Ships of Kittim will come against him, and being intimidated, remember that part, he will withdraw. Then he will rage against the holy covenant and take action. On his return, he will favor those who abandon the holy covenant. His forces will rise up and desecrate the temple fortress. They will abolish the daily sacrifice and set up the abomination of desolation. With flattery, he will corrupt those who act wickedly towards the covenant. But the people who know their God will be strong and take action. Those who are wise among the people will give understanding to many, yet they will die by sword and flame and be captured and plundered for a time. When defeated, they will be helped by some, but many others will join them insincerely. Some of the wise will fall so they may be refined, purified, and cleansed until the end of the time, for it will come at the appointed time. I know that was a lot to take in. Now, this character is interesting. We've talked about him before. If you go back to chapter 8 of Daniel, Antiochus Epiphanes was a prototype, a foreshadowing, kind of a, a model, if you will, for the Antichrist, the last great leader that, that some of us may see in our lifetime or maybe our children or our children's children. We don't know. But this guy was the brother of Seleucus, the, the, the king that died after a short reign, right? That was assassinated. Now, Antiochus Epiphanes was not the rightful heir to the throne. The rightful heir to the throne had been captured by the Romans, and so the brother of the king became king by intrigue, not by the typical way of becoming king. So he becomes king of the north. Meanwhile, in Egypt, Cleopatra is running uh, uh, Egypt with her son, Ptolemy VII. Okay, so they're down there in Egypt. He's up here in the north. So what happens is the fighting starts again. So verse 25 through 28, is talking about more major conflicts between Syria and Egypt. And the little horn of chapter 8, Antiochus Epiphanes, marched down through modern-day Israel, Palestine, to Egypt, and he was going to fight Ptolemy, and he won this battle. He won this battle because the king of Egypt had, had been deceived. There was treason, and so he lost this battle. Okay? So Antiochus is feeling good, heading back up to Syria, comes across the Jewish people in Jerusalem again, and he's like, hey, we ransack these people all the time. Let's just wipe them out. Let's ransack their temple. Let's steal a bunch of stuff from them. Let's pick up some apostate Jews. Let's do some damage here, and that's what they do. So he's traveling through, and, and, and that's what happens. And so, again, he gets back up home, wants to come down to Egypt and kick their butt again, so he's traveling back down south again, but this time it's different. The Romans get involved again. So they were involved over here in Greece, and now they kind of back up Egypt. And as he shows up to Egypt to fight, Romans are there, and they have a cease and desist. Stop. Here's some papers. Go back home. So when it says in the Bible that he was intimidated, history tells us that he showed up, and the Romans said, hey, if you pick, with, pick, pick on the Egyptians, you're picking on us. He didn't want to pick on Rome. So he went back. So again, in his anger, on his way up through modern-day Israel, well, let's ransack the Jews again. Let's steal more stuff. Let's tax them. Let's pick up more rebellious Jews. Let's do this whole thing again. And it wasn't just about power, and it wasn't just about money. He hated the Jewish people. So what he did is he took it even a step further, and he went to their temple, their synagogue, where they worshiped the true God, and he did what's called the desecration, uh, uh, the abomination of, de of desolation. And what he did is he wanted to desecrate the temple, not just knock it down or like urinate on the door or something like that. He wanted to do something extremely offensive. So what he did, this Greek, Antiochus, is he took a statue of Zeus and put it right in the middle of the temple. In, in our modern day, it'd be like if some government came through came into our doors and set up a huge, you know, statue of Ganesha right here on the stage. Hey, you can worship your God, but this God's going to sit right here too. And if you actually read the book of Maccabees, it's not in my Bible, it's in the Apocrypha, the Catholic Bible. If you read the book of Maccabees, it suggests that the Jewish temple was actually renamed the Temple of Zeus Olympus. That would have been extremely offensive to the Jewish people. Now, Jesus actually talks about this. 
In Matthew 24, 15, he mentions the book of Daniel and he talks about this event. He talks about it in Mark 13, 14 as well. And so what's going to happen, the Bible says, is that some of the Jews will be extremely offended. They'll stand firm in their faith and they will fight against this. And then it says other Jews will bend. Well, you know, we'll still worship our God, but you bring your God in too. That's called pluralism or universalism. And it's happening again in Christianity. Hey, it's okay if you worship your God. Just, yeah, we'll just worship alongside each other. It's cool. You worship yours. Well, they all lead to the same path, right? Completely antithetical to what Jesus Christ said. There is one way, and Jesus said it's through him. And so this is happening again. But the ones who refuse to bend to this idea that there's multiple ways to the same center. The ones who, who refuse to bend will suffer persecutions. And this is a foreshadowing for the future tribulation. If you say that nowadays, you're not, gonna, you know, you're not gonna be persecuted in the United States physically, but if you say to people, I believe there is one true pathway to the Father, God, there's a certain amount of ridicule that you'll receive from that. So oddly enough, two groups, very important groups, arose from this resistance of having a false God in the temple. One of the groups is the Pharisees. Now, if you've ever read the New Testament, Jesus and the Pharisees didn't get along very well, but the Pharisees weren't always bad guys. In fact, they were the, the, one of the few that stood up to this pluralistic view of God. So they arose from this. Another group called the Essenes also rose from this, and they're the ones that wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls, if you've ever heard of that. Very, very important uh, uh, piece of, of, of uh, uh, archaeology that we discovered about 70 years ago. And so they actually wrote that. So what happens? Now we're going to get into the fun stuff. If you've been sleeping, caca, time to wake up. Uh, if you've ever seen Three Amigos, right? Over here. Um, verse 35 is a bridge. And what verse 35 does is some people believe it's still talking about Antiochus Epiphanes, but other people believe this is taking us into a future that has not happened yet that it's talking about the coming Antichrist and the coming tribulation. The phrase that people argue about is when it says the time of the end. Now, some people say, well, that's the time of the end of Antiochus. Other people say, well, no, this is talking about the end, the very end. Now, if you're a premillennialist, if you don't know what that is, I'm going to tell you here in a second. If you're a premillennialist, everything I'm about to read, you believe is the future. It has not happened yet, okay? Which is where the camp I fall into. I'm going to read it to you, and I'll break it down. This is where we get into the fun stuff. Fun's kind of sadistic, though. It's about the end of the world, which maybe there's a better word than fun. Interesting. Here we go. This part's interesting. Then the king will do whatever he wants. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god. He will say outrageous things against the god of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed, because what has been decreed will be accomplished. He will not show regard for the gods of his fathers, the God longed for by women, or any other God, because he will magnify himself above all. Instead, he will honor a God of fortresses, a God his fathers did not know, with silver, gold, precious stones, and riches." He will deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. He will greatly honor those who acknowledge him, making them rulers over many and distributing land as a reward. At the time of the end, the king of the south will engage him in battle, but the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, horsemen, and many ships." He will invade countries and sweep through them like a flood. He will also invade the beautiful land, that's Israel, and many will fall. But these will escape his power, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of the Ammonites. He will extend his power against the countries, and not even the land of Egypt will escape. He will get control over the hidden treasures of the gold and the silver and all the riches of Egypt. The Libyans and the Cushites will also be in submission." But reports from the east and the north will terrify him, and he will go out with great fury to annihilate and completely destroy many. He will pitch his royal tents between the sea and the beautiful holy mountain, but he will meet his end with no one to help him. 
Okay, so premillennialism, big fancy churchy word, right? All this simply means is this. You're a premillennialist if you believe that Jesus will literally come back. There's seven years of tribulation. Jesus will come back to earth. He will throw the antichrist and the false prophet. We'll talk about him in a second. We'll throw them into the lake of fire. Jesus will set up a kingdom for a thousand years on earth. There will be uh, uh, a thousand years of harmony. Satan will be bound. And after that thousand years, Satan will be loosed for a little bit. There will be another rebellion and Jesus will crush that, cast the devil into hell for eternity. And then we either go to heaven or we go to hell. That's what a premillennialist believes. Now, this isn't a new idea. I put that it was talked about since the fourth century, St. Jerome. Um, he's one of the guys that's helpful for us having a translation of the Bible that we can read. But um, even before St. Jerome, there's a guy named Justin Martyr that talked a lot about premillennialism in about the second century. So this has been around for a long time, about 1800 years or so, this train of thought has been around. Now, if you fall into this camp, if you don't, it's okay. If you fall into this camp, everything I just read is talking about the future that has not happened yet. Eschatology is the fancy word for that. And what I just read to me lines up really well with 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and the book of Revelation chapter 13 and 17. These parallels are even going to be more clear next week when we do chapter 12 of Daniel, okay? So as we get into this, if we're thinking of this last part as being a guy that has not showed up yet, the Antichrist, the last final uh, evil leader before Jesus comes back, it says that this individual will show no regard to the gods of his fathers. That leads some people, not me, to believe that the Antichrist will be Jewish because he denies the gods of his father. What that's talking about is not that he's going to deny the true God or any of that. He's going to deny all world religion. So more than likely, the Antichrist is not going to be a, a Muslim or a Hindu or a Jew or someone who claims to be a Christian. It's going to be someone who's going to abolish all those world religions in order to create a new religion that focuses on him. He is the God. He is the focus of that new religion. So something a little bit more confusing is it says he's not going to honor his father's gods nor the God desired by women. Some people think maybe that's a reference to the Greek goddesses like Adonis, or maybe that's uh, talking about the fact that this guy's really misogynistic and is cruel to women, or maybe it's talking about the fact that uh, there was this weird group of women that, that, that really wanted to birth the Messiah before Jesus was born, and maybe that's a reference to that. There's all these kind of weird ideas that we don't know what it means, but we know that he's going to create essentially his own religion. And at the center of his religion is going to be himself, and it says that war will be his God, that he will, he will honor a God of fortresses. It shows that he's going to be a great tactician in battle. Now, why I don't think this is talking about Antiochus, the guy of the last part we read, because Antiochus kind of sucked at war. So he was not a great tactician. Like he got beat by the Egyptians, beat by the Greeks, beat by the Romans. He just, he wasn't great at war. So I don't think that lines up very well. But this individual it's going to be great at war. He's going to be great at conquering things. And so the Antichrist, all through Revelation, all through Daniel, is, is, is told to be someone who's extremely manipulative. He will bribe people. He will reward the people that back him up. And we need to remember, as we get into this political season, that the Antichrist will be a charismatic politician with the aid of a charismatic false religious leader. So listen, when my skin kind of crawls at how much emphasis that Christians are putting on this coming election. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't vote. I've watched every debate, both Democrat and Republican. I've watched all of them. I stay plugged in. I think that's what we should do. But whenever I hear Christians saying, man, that guy's going to save us. That woman's going to save us. This person's going to save us. No, no, no. No one's going to save you except Jesus. That's the only one that's going to save you. Don't wait on a man and a woman this circus that's going on, don't wait for those, one of those people to step up and to save us. Not only politicians, don't look at a religious leader to do that. Billy Graham's not going to save, nothing wrong with the man. Billy Graham's not going to save you. Francis Chan's not going to save you. I'm not going to say, no one else is going to save you. Christ is our salvation. Christ is our salvation. He's the one. And guys, everything that's going to happen, it's because God has already laid out that plan. Now, look, I've watched, I don't endorse any politician. I don't 
I, I don't have a guy that I'm just excited about or a woman I'm excited about. None of that. None of, I could, oh, never mind. I'm just not excited about any of them. But I was watching one of the debates the other night, and I found it interesting, this, this, how we've exalted these men and women up to these ridiculous levels. Uh, it was at the Republican debate, and they were asking Marco Rubio a question. And um, the moderator, there's three of them, and one of the moderators was reading out of the New York Times or something, said, uh, it's been said that you are the savior of the United States. What do you think of that? And Marco Rubio said, oh, hold on a second. There's only one savior of the United States and it's not me. And I was like, wow, that's interesting. The whole conversation there that we look at them like that and it's good at least to hear one politician say, I'm not that, you know? And so it's interesting to see this dichotomy and we lift them up so high. And that's why we're probably constantly disappointed by them. It also talks about that there will be wars and rumors of wars. Matthew 24 talks about this. Jesus talks about it. His disciples said, hey, Jesus, when are you going to come back? And he kind of told them what the world is going to look like right before he comes back, that there will be a lot of wars. And this is what Daniel alludes to. Just like the constant battling between the north and the south, there's going to be similar battles. And verse 41 mentions that Israel is going to be right in the middle of that. And it says that Israel will be in the middle of that fighting, but they, you know, part, some of them will fall, but not all of them. And it says Edom and Moab and the Ammonites, these people will not fall. And what some people think that's talking about is in Isaiah 11, it talks about a restored Israel, that Israel will be more sovereign and maybe they will kind of adopt some of these outlining areas and these people will be protected. Again, we don't know all the details. It's not super important. We know that there's going to be all this fighting and there will, some people will be spared. North Africa doesn't look to be so fortunate. It actually goes into detail about Egypt. It goes into Libya. It goes into the area of the Kushites, that this area is going to be heavily dominated by the Antichrist. And so when the Antichrist is in North Africa, okay, he's going to get news. We don't know what the news is, but he's going to get news that something is happening northeast, now, if you, you don't have to, if you go back and look at your map, northeast of, of North Africa is right back through Israel, right back into Syria, okay? And so when he's on his way up northeast, the Antichrist will stop his armies and they will pitch their tent, his royal tents, in the valley of Megiddo, which is right between the Dead Sea and the Mediterranean Sea. It says here, the holy mountain and the sea. He's gonna pitch his tent right in the middle of this valley. Now, this is that valley, Modern day, of course, they didn't have cameras back then. So this is the Valley of Megiddo right now. Now, I think it was uh, Napoleon Bonaparte had made a reference to this is one of the greatest areas he's ever seen for a major battle. So this area is very famous. Now, in the Bible, they talk about this is going to be the place where the final battle between good and evil will take place. And that battle is called, and most of you have heard this term before, Armageddon. So this valley that we just talked about lies right in the middle of a very heavy trade route between Syria and Egypt. And this, no one can say definitely, I mean, I wouldn't like bank my life on it or anything, but no interpretation seems to make more sense than this is the place where all of the armies of the Antichrist will meet Jesus Christ and they will, they will war. We're going to talk about that war here in a second, but he will meet his end here and no one will be there to help him. And it just shows the inevitability that evil loses and good wins. Now, this is what it says in Revelation 19. I like this. Then I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and against his army. We know that's talking about Jesus because his is capitalized, okay? So imagine this battle scene, right? But the beast was taken prisoner, and along with him the false prophet, the antichrist and the false religious leader, who had performed the signs in his presence. He deceived those who accepted the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image with these signs. Both of them, the antichrist and the false prophet, were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword that came from the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all of the birds were filled with their flesh. That's a really happy imagery there. The word that comes out of, Je what comes out of Jesus's mouth isn't a literal sword. What it's meaning is he opens his mouth and the word comes out. Just like he spoke the universe into existence, he speaks evil into destruction. And they are obliterated. And it says very graphically in Revelation 19 that all the birds in the air will feast. And it also says in Revelation that 
the blood from this battle. It's not really much of a battle. It's not like, you know, they're all fighting and struggling. Jesus opens his mouth and everyone's destroyed that's evil, right? That there will be blood that's up to the saddle of a horse in this valley. There will be so much bloodshed. Now, here's the thing. Without getting too deep into that stuff, we must not lose the overall message of the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation. It is so easy to get lost and to argue and to just become enamored with end time details. But what chapter 11 does for me, and if you're in here and you're a skeptic, go back and research Greek history and go back and look at Daniel chapter 11. And it's remarkable, remarkable how right on it is. And so even the biggest skeptic should step away and say, wow, that's a pretty crazy coincidence or maybe something divine is at play here. So what chapter 11 shows us is this, God is sovereign. It means he's under control, he's got it under control, nothing happens without his knowledge, he's already written out the whole, the whole story, he has got it all. So when we worry about politics, when we worry about the fate of our country, when we worry about the future of our children, we have to sit back every once in a while and just rest in the fact that God is in control. He's sovereign, he's sovereign, he's sovereign. And so Revelation 19, this should be your homework. Go back and read Revelation 19. If you do that, you're just gonna read the whole book of Revelation because it's fun. Revelation chapter 19 correlates with Daniel chapter 11. And what it does is it not only gives us more detail of the sovereignty of God, it gives us a little bit of the nature of God. We learn kind of how God operates. And the first thing we learn from Daniel and especially in the book of Revelation, is we learn that Jesus Christ is the king that conquers evil and he is the righteous judge of humanity. What I mean is this, guys, and I'm not trying to be dramatic. One day there will be no more child abuse. One day there will be no more rape or incest. One day there will be no more human trafficking or wars or pestilence or famine or greed or materialism. All those things, all those injustices will be abolished because he is the king that conquers evil. He will come back and set it straight. And then it says in, in a little after chapter 19 in Revelation that he will bring all people throughout all of history together and he will righteously judge humanity because he is the author of righteousness. He is the one that sets the bar from what is good and through what is evil and he will separate people accordingly. We also must know, and I've said it 10 times probably, some of you in this room, guys, some of you in this room who are terrified of what's going on, especially with politics. Now look, research, vote in alignment with your conscience and what, you, what your beliefs are, do that. You need to be an active participant as a citizen, right? I get it, but at the end of the day, there is no man or woman that's gonna save you, politically, religiously, and we have to fall back and understand that whatever happens, uh, almost everyone in this room on some level is gonna be disappointed come November, right? You don't have to affirm that. But anyways, we're all, a lot of us are going to be disappointed. We're going to see what happens. We have to fall back and say, God, I don't get it, but you're up to something. I know that what you're doing has a plan because I can go back to Daniel chapter 11 and see that your plan always works out to your benefit and it always works out for the good of those who love him. He's sovereign regardless if we understand or not. We must also understand that God is gracious. It is in his nature to be gracious. This is a huge thing for me. The last month or so, since we started this fast, this has been my huge like, like mountain that I've been hanging on onto, is that God is gracious to give us historical, genealogical, biological, and archaeological evidence to support another great gift he's given us, the Bible. The more you study, I said it last week, if people will just put in a little bit of time and a little bit of effort into this word and into history, into archeological uh, findings, into biological things, you will see that this book is right on, right on. The more archeological discoveries that they do in the Middle East, the more it just affirms everything that this Bible has told us. We've seen historical evidence today, studying Greek history and seeing that the Bible prophesied that before it took place. The genealogical evidence, if you trace all those people back in Chronicles and in the beginning of the Gospels and things like that, it works. Even the biological side of it. People always argue about the book of, Levitic, uh, book of Leviticus. 
Well, all these things must be wrong because Leviticus is crazy. It told them not to blend cotton. You know why it says not to blend cotton in the book of Leviticus? Because people were allergic to certain kinds of materials. Before there was chemistry and biology and clothing companies, God said, don't blend these things because some of you are going to have allergic reactions. Don't eat raw meat because you'll get parasites. Don't carve things into your arm because it can get infected. That stuff was written there for people to understand biology before biology even existed because God's the author of biology. Every single word in this book is relevant. Every single word of it. And if you go back and study it, it just takes a little bit of work. It all makes sense. And all the criticisms against this book can be broken apart. It's where I'm just, I'm hanging my hat on that. I believe in every single fiber of my being. I believe this word and I believe the God that authored it. I believe it. We also need to understand that it is in his nature to be loving. It is in his nature to be generous. The reason why he has given us this, think about it. We don't have to guess. You don't have to figure it out on your own. God delivered this word through, through, through different men to write these things down. And so we can have this. So we don't have to guess what a good marriage looks like. We don't have to guess how economics should work. We don't have to guess what the family structure should look like. We don't have to guess about how to live. It's right there. It's right there. And he's graciously given us this because he loves us. He doesn't want us to walk around in the dark. He says, look, look here. There you go. There's my mind. There's my nature. There's how I operate. There it is right there. He's loving to us. He's generous to us. Generous. He sent his only son to die the most violent, humiliating death imaginable. And not just, just, just to die and be a martyr, but to rise again. And then listen, the Holy Spirit of God that raised Jesus Christ from the dead now fills up people that believe in him so we can live in such a way that pleases God. Let that soak in for a second. We talk about the crucifixion like that was the greatest thing. No, no, it was the resurrection. It was the fact that the Holy Spirit was poured out just 50 days later. That God now doesn't dwell in a building. Who cares if they knock down the building? God's here. He's in you if you allow him to be. Does that sink in, guys? Seriously. 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 Does that sink in? Does it sink in that God loves you to death? That God loves you in a way that doesn't even make any sense? That God hears you and God listens to you as long as you will just focus on him and pray in his will. As long as we will humble ourselves. We, we can have a relationship. Think about what I'm saying. We can have a relationship with God. 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 Can I tell you guys a freaky story? I've not told anyone this. I, I, told, I told them this at prayer. If you're, if you're new here, you're going to think I'm just a whack job. You guys ready? You're, okay. Those of you who've been coming for a while, you're like, we already knew this. Um, uh, but it, so last night, okay, at the seven o'clock, I'm so reluctant to tell you this, and this is the one we record and it's live streamed and all that stuff, so people in other states can think I'm a whack job too. <laughs> I, I go up before, every time I get up here to speak, I go right up to this post, the far post, and I, I pray before I get up here, all four services, because I'm nervous as I'll get out. Walk up there, and everyone who sits on that side, they, they see me over there. I'm over there praying at this far post, right, right over here. Never prayed this in my entire life. In my entire life, I've never prayed for something like this. I said, God, because we just got done covering chapter 10 about angels, right? And I'm not an angel maniac, but I guess I have been an angel phobic. I'm afraid to talk about angels. It just kind of weirds me out a little bit. So I'm over here at this post, and I don't know why I felt the need to pray it, but I said, God, if you have a guardian angel for me, or if there's an angel for our church or our city or whatever, God, if, if that's how it works, I just feel the need to, to ask you to send them to this church and just, just watch over me during this message. This message. I was nervous. And I was like, God, just send them to protect me. I just need protection. I don't know why. Just, just send them. That's all I prayed. So I got up here and I taught, and I, I prayed that during the last song, the last worship song. So I got up here and I taught, and I got done, and I was back at the back here, and there's a student pastor from Minneapolis, Minnesota. His family comes to church here, and he was visiting, had lunch with him last week. Really good guy, really, really stable guy, just a normal dude. He's not a freak weirdo, right? Normal guy. 
he came up after me. Uh, he came up after service and he goes, hey man, dude, I got something I want to tell you. And like, you're going to think I'm just a nut job. You're going to think I'm crazy. And I was like, no, man, you know, like, let me have it. And he goes, dude, okay. He goes, I'm worshiping during the last song. Worshiping during the last song, and I got my hands up and my eyes closed. And he goes, as clearly as can be, like in my mind's eye, my eyes are closed. He goes, I saw these two huge chairs by these microphones up here on each side of the stage, and there was just angels sitting in these chairs, just making sure that everything was okay in the church. Now, now listen. He didn't know what I had prayed over here. And I sat there and looked at him, and I was just like, I mean, my skin's like, it's making, it's weird. And so I, I sat back and I looked at him and I was like, can I tell you what I prayed before service? And I told him, or not before service, before I spoke, and I told him and he just, dude, just, dude, just started just bawling. I'm just going to tell you, man, like, I believe with every single fiber of my being, I believe in this word and I believe that God sees us, loves us, and is present. He's not distant. He's not far away. He's right here. He's right here. He's right here. And I don't know what you needed from this lesson today. I don't know what you needed. But I want you to know he conquers evil and the evil of this world is going to be dealt with. He's sovereign. He's gracious. He loves us and he's so generous. And I don't know what part of that you needed, but I hope you heard it. Would you bow your heads with me, please? My God, I love you. Father, I love you. God, for everyone in this room, Lord, God, I, I hope I, I hope I, God, I hope I did your will today. Father, I hope I taught this lesson in a way that brings you honor. I, 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 God, I hope that telling that story, Lord, that that brought you honor, that speaks to someone, God, or God, I don't know. I'm just, I'm in awe of you, Lord, and I just, we need you so much. God, for whatever people needed to get from this lesson, Father, you delivered it, and you know. Fathers, we take communion, Lord. I pray that everyone approaches the communion with a clear conscience and a clear heart, that they repent for whatever sins they've taken, God, and that whatever sins they've participated in, and they can come and take your communion, the representation of your body and blood that was given for us, that they can take that, Lord, and that they can, they can, they can be nurtured, that they can be fed by that, God. Lord, if anyone needs prayer, there's people up here to my left, God. I pray, Lord, that you give them the courage to go find prayer, to get prayer, to, to ask questions. If there's anyone that's skeptical in this room, Father, Lord, just give them the, the, the endurance and the strength and the courage to dig. And if they dig, God, they're going to find. They're going to find. Lord, I love you, God, and I praise you and I thank you, Lord. Thank you for just being here. We, we say all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, you're welcome to take communion. If you don't take communion, please be respectful of those that do.